Capital Allocators is brought to you by Northern Trust Asset Servicing. Who knows, the more you can make efficient and effective investment decisions, the greater good you'll do in the world. That's why Northern Trust is committed to empowering the missions of asset owners like you with what you need most, agility in the face of an ever-changing market landscape. With an unwavering commitment to the asset owner community for over 100 years and a planned technology spend of over $3 billion, Northern Trust is dedicated to providing innovative solutions and capabilities for the world's most complex and sophisticated investors. Be on the lookout for the newest destination in the asset owner space, NTA Suite. Joining NTA Suite will allow you to access the latest insights, research, and networking opportunities. Dedicated to asset owners and allocators, this is where you can learn, collaborate, and move the needle on issues that matter most to you. To learn more, visit northerntrust.com slash solutions. Capital Allocators is brought to you by Numerai, the world's hardest data science tournament. To learn more about Numerai, visit numer.ai. That's N-U-M-E-R dot A-I. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Brent Bishore, the founder and chief executive officer of Adventures, an investment firm that buys small family-owned businesses with the intention of holding them indefinitely. After launching a few businesses out of college, Brent developed a distinct investment strategy and style. Earlier this year, he raised outside capital for the first time in a permanent capital vehicle, and I'm happy to be an investor in his fund. Brent regularly shares his insights on business and investing through his widely distributed letters on his website and his commentary on Twitter. And just last week, he released his first book, The Messy Marketplace, Selling Your Business in a World of Imperfect Buyers. It's a fantastic instructional guide that covers everything from emotional expectations to the fine print in documentation. Our conversation covers Brent's childhood interest in business, early mistakes, structural differences in his strategy from traditional private equity, search funds and fundless sponsors, sourcing deals, conducting due diligence, understanding valuation, negotiating, raising a first-time permanent capital vehicle, entering the ranks of professionals, and his new book. Brent is unusually insightful about investing in general and deeply knowledgeable about the niche he occupies. Please enjoy my conversation with Brent Bishore. Brent, so good to be here with you. Hey, thanks, man, for having me. How'd you first get interested in business? Boy, that's a great question. I've always, from a young age, just been interested in the idea of 
taking resources and turning them into more resources. I guess Monopoly has kind of a mixed uh, reputation, but I was just, I dominated at Monopoly growing <laughs> up. I love playing. I love the sport of it. I love the psychology of it. I love the negotiation of it. And I used to have all of the probabilities memorized on the board and then how you can change the rules of the game to alter the probabilities, right? So like depending on what you get, if you hit free parking, depending on like if you roll double three times in a row, you go to jail, that all changes the probabilities of the board, including the values of the properties. How old were you when you started calculating probabilities in Monopoly? Well, I mean, it was rough, right? It wasn't like the exact <laughs> probabilities, but uh, you know, like, I, I don't know, like seven or eight. I mean, you know, it was wow. like, so it was just a blast like growing up. So I've always had that like desire to take something, like I said, and, and do more with it. And then when did you start actually applying it to businesses? I'm not one of these guys that grew up investing in stocks. I didn't really have a passion for what I would call investing until really my mid mid to late 20s. So the business side started as I dropped out of law and MBA to start a company. I mean, that's really when I started throwing elbows and getting into the thick of it. And you, know, you can learn a heck of a lot more through that than book smart. Yeah. What was the first company? So the first company was an event marketing company. So this is back in 2007. Marketing back then was like the rage. It was like the hot thing to do. It was a, a pretty resoundingly terrible business model. Um, and so like, <laughs> I, like, I like to describe that the reason why I may have, have a little bit finer tune for quality of business models is because I've pretty much enacted all the terrible ones, I think. So if you look at the event marketing business, it's heavy labor. Its scalability is really challenging. It's location dependent. And for the most part, Part, it's a what I would call a devalued service. So that some things are hard and are regarded as being very difficult to perform, and some things are are very easy and regarded as being difficult to perform. Right? Other things are very difficult and are regarded as easy to perform. And putting on complex events is incredibly challenging. Anybody who's ever been involved in event production and, and doing sort of large scale events knows that, that the challenge is if you don't know that, it doesn't seem that complicated. So it has weird optics associated with it that anything that's not valued as being difficult is not going to be highly compensated. And so you have an interesting combination where it's a really difficult business to perform and it's just not that well paid. Right. So that's a tough start, but you had no idea it was an idea to do the business and you just dove into it. Yeah. I mean, it was a friend, his wife, we were out one night and I was kind of frustrated with my school trajectory. I realized at this time I didn't want to be a lawyer and I didn't feel like I was getting a ton out of the MBA program at the time. And so, and a lot of that, to be completely honest, was my own arrogance. I mean, looking back on it, there was a lot of really smart people that were trying to teach me a lot of things. And the most confident people in the world are probably 22-year-olds or 23-year-olds because you know just enough to be dangerous and just not enough of real life to know that you're not actually nearly smart. So looking back on it, I mean, I think I was just tired of school and, and she said she wanted to do this. She said, do you want to be the business side of it? And I said, sure. I still don't know what that means which is probably a bad sign. The nice thing is you got to take the lemons that you're given and you got to turn them into something else, right? Try to make lemonade out of them. And so looked at that business model and, and said, okay, this, I just knew this wasn't going to work. Like six months in, I was like, this is a failing, like everything I know about, about what we're doing is not going to work sustainably long-term. And the upside of it is we're going to grind away for a really long time and hope to make a little bit of money. And I think all the stuff that can sideswipe you in business, like you've got to you got to generate profits when the times are good because 
times are not always good and you get hit with lawsuits and you get hit with regulation and you get hit with tariffs. So you got to be able to set aside some when the times are good. And it just was not a business model, but it led into other business models that were far better, not great. Again, kind of continuing to fine tune the education around business models and, and what works and what doesn't led into the sort of the marketing agency business, did some work in the film industry video production research was another area that we kind of got into and then you know digital marketing more like you know websites and apps and things like that so it was a you know it was a kind of a natural progression and that that just came out of we started working with some agencies on the event marketing side and said well, wait a minute they're getting paid a lot more for what looks like would be better work and why don't we do more of that and less what we're doing? So you evolved the original business into... Yeah, we evolved. The way the original business was set up, it didn't really evolve into the next, but it, it kind of led into the next. That's what then led into having an opportunity to purchase a company, which we've now owned for almost nine years out of St. Louis. And then the rest is history kind of from there. I, I learned that I was far better at trying to create win-win situations for sellers than I was at you know creating businesses wholesale and for, sort of from scratch. And I enjoyed that process more. And so... Eight years ago, I guess, would you say the light switch got flipped on and I said, wow, I mean, there's got to be more people out there that need, need to transition and turns out got lucky in terms of the tidal wave. I mean, at the time I had no idea that baby boomers would be retiring and would own upwards of 70 plus percent of the heavy cash flow assets in the country. It's just something that didn't even dawn on me. And you know, it took a lot of research to kind of come to conclusions, but then seeing a lot of this reinforcing information coming out of Stanford and Harvard uh, around search funds, which is kind of a similar type thesis to attacking it in a very different way. And so that, you know, the evolution just kind of went from there. When did you evolve from your starting a business, you see a different opportunity, you're just grinding at that business to having like a research lens that tells you, oh, this is an opportunity set to pursue almost an investor's mindset. I've always been sensitive to the sort of highest and best use of of time. I mean, I think that's a concept that just comes very naturally to me. I know I'm not that great at most things. And I think that this applies to most people. I think that most people are mediocre to subpar at most of the things that they perform. And there's a few superpowers that that everyone has that if you know you can just use those and do those that, that creates incredible value. And so I looked at it through that lens and said, okay, what are the things that I seem to be that come easy to me that seem to be more difficult for everyone else? And what are those things for you? I would say being able to put together a bigger picture and being able to recruit talent or two the things that consistently we've done over time and I think done done pretty well at. And really just finding people that we all sharing the vision where we want to go and then just giving people the autonomy to get there. I know it sounds cliche. It's it's funny. Like a lot of the cliches are true though, right? I mean, that's, that's what makes them cliches. There's a lot of nuance to how to perform in business, but I mean, at the basic levels, just treat people really, really well. Be very selective of who you, who you let on the team. Make sure that the vision is super clear and then just give people the freedom to perform. No one wants to be micromanaged. And if things are cloudy and every day the vision is changing, I think this is what maybe startups a lot of times, and I've certainly experienced this in the companies that we've started up. If every two weeks you're pivoting to a new idea or a new variation, it's just really hard. Like everyone gets whiplash. And I think that you can make changes, but you got to be really careful with how those changes are made and know sort of over what period of time and not to hit everything with that pivot hammer, right? It's like everything's going to be hard. I mean, that's one of the things that I think I struggle with most in, in my career, especially early on, was just 
the grass is always greener syndrome, right? Like, oh, we're doing this, but what if we did these things over here? Because what we're doing right now is really hard. Well, it turns out everything's hard, right? Yeah. And so that's another thing I had to learn was when you hit the dip, when you sort of get over the initial excitement and we're going to the moon and everything's going to be rosy and you start getting into the down from 30,000 feet into the below the clouds, it's messy. You know, people are messy and businesses are messy and, and, and it's just, you, you've got to be able to work through the mess. And if, when things get hard, you're then moving on to the next thing. It's just going to get messy and you're going to get into the spin cycle where you never really accomplish yeah. anything. So as you started, went through a couple of different businesses, you buy a business, what did you crystallize as that strategy for you? Well, I think the strategy was get anchors in the marketplace. So what we think about it as footholds or anchors in the marketplace that we can learn constantly about that thing and get good at it, perform, you know, provide real value to the clients that we're serving, and then look for ways to express that expertise in other areas. And then when resources are generated by the operating of, you know, performance of the companies, taking those resources and redeploying them back into the highest return opportunities. Break that down. What's the anchor? Is that a business? The anchors for us initially were we had these you know, collection of marketing companies, and then we we ended up purchasing a recruitment marketing business, Media Cross, that we still own today. And then those were complementary skill sets because recruitment marketing is still a form of marketing, right? So we had a background in marketing and, and lead generation, but expressed very differently. It was expressed for the military. It was expressed in education for states recruiting teachers. It was a very unusually different aspect versus in the core marketing businesses that we had originally developed. I mean, we were doing everything from consumer products to B2B sales, some software marketing. I mean, it was a, it was a variety, right? And so I think that looking for those footholds of expertise is a really interesting and then looking, you know, interesting way of going about it. And then you look for ways to express those differently. It's kind of in the same way, you know, expressing expertise and how that builds the same way that capital compounds. So if you think about them, they're very parallel paths that you got to think about is, okay, we have these skill sets. What's the highest and best use and expression of those skill sets, right? And over time, those skill sets compound in value. You actually become an expert at what you do, right? And it happens slowly, right? Like, <laughs> that's the funny thing about getting into something new is, you know, you think you're an expert like three months in or four months in because <laughs> you don't see any of the nuance. And then seven, eight years into it, you actually have developed a real expertise. And then it's just a question of, are we using that and expressing that in the best way for our clients or to the best group? It's the highest, best use of it. Well, same thing for capital, right? So you think about, you've got operations that are spinning off profits. You take those and you can either deploy them back into the business. By the way, this is the challenge that most small business owners get into is there's not really that high return opportunities for the cash flow generated. So you're generating a lot more cash flow than you are opportunities to deploy that cash flow. And so what you end up doing is either doing really low return investments or getting negative investments. I mean, we've looked at businesses where they have an incredible core engine that spins off a bunch of cash and they basically take that cash and murder it, right? By reinvesting it in very low probability, low confidence types of ways in the business. And I think that's one of the things that at Adventures we've always been thinking about is how do we look for opportunities to where we set the bar high, both within the portfolio as well as outside of it. You know, our default is not to do anything. We're fine just building cash. We're fine sitting on our hands. But then you have these opportunities that come along that you want to have the highest opportunity cost in the world. I mean, that's one of the things that we think about a lot at Adventures is how do we continue to build our opportunity cost? Because like I, I want to choose between an, a really great decision and an amazingly excellent one, right? I mean, if those are your choices, you're still going to win. So did that then lead you from owning a few businesses into looking for new deals? 
Yeah. Well, so I like to joke that we fell backwards into private equity. Like I didn't ever know that there was an industry called private equity, right? I'm, I don't have a finance degree. I think I've taken one accounting class in my life. So my undergrad was politics with an emphasis in poverty studies. And then in the MBA program, I was only there for, you know, call it a year. And I took mostly marketing focused classes because that's what I was interested in some business processes and, and things, but it wasn't, I was never educated that there was venture capital or private equity or any of these nuances. I didn't know what investment banking was. So really it was just falling backwards into it through, we bought this business we really enjoyed it. We enjoyed the process. We enjoyed the people. We enjoyed serving these new clients. We enjoyed innovating in the business and on the business model. And then the question is, well, how do we do that again? Well, we got to go find somebody else, right? Well, how do we do that? Well, are there other people out there? How big is the universe? I mean, it's very one foot in front of the other. It wasn't like we had this grand plan all along that we're going to develop a holding company structure with a permanent equity capital base that then goes. I mean, all those things I learned later from people far smarter than me that were like, oh, this is what you're doing. And I was like, is it? Oh, great. <laughs> cool. So let's break it down. When you first started doing that, the first thing you had to do was find another business to buy. Yeah. So what is that process for sourcing new businesses? It's probably worth talking about what it is today because it's evolved a lot, sure. right? And we've made incredible mistakes. I mean, that's one of the things that whenever you you look at anything in hindsight, it always looks like a straight line. You go from A to B, and in, in reality, it's the, the line squiggly and you know zigzagging all over the place. And so, and we follow the same trajectory. I mean, we've wasted a tremendous amount of time and money and effort doing lots of things that seemed like they would work. That frankly, just don't work. So what we do today is we try to consistently express our opinions about what we're looking for, about how we work, about why we're going after certain segments. We try to make our value proposition incredibly clear in the marketplace of we're offering a different product is how we kind of consider it than traditional private equity. And we offer a different product than search funds. We offer a different product than fundless sponsors. We offer a different product than a country club deal. And these are, when I say a different product, we're offering this product primarily to sellers, although the, the leadership teams are, are really closely behind. I mean, we want to set the table well for the future. And so we offer a product to sellers and the leadership teams and we're selling peace of mind and obviously financial de-risking to the sellers. And we're offering stability and just a kind, generous, long-term home for leadership teams where they can prosper and flourish. And as you walk through those different pools of capital, what's the differentiation from what you're offering from say a private equity fund and a search fund. To start with private equity, if you think about the traditional, and look, there's lots of flavors of private equity, right? I'm, and I have lots of friends in private equity now, and I really respect what they do, right? So this is, it's just a different thing. We, we They're trying to achieve something different than we are. And what they're typically trying to achieve is purchasing an asset that they have a plan for. So this is the famous, you know, 60, 90 day plan. They're going to come in and say, okay, look, we, we've been there. We've done that. We've got operating partners that have lots of experience in an industry. We're going to fairly quickly and dramatically professionalize the company. As far as the deal goes, we're going to load up the company with quite a bit of debt is that sort of the norm. We're going to put it on a three-year time frame where we're going to whip it into shape and then we're going to try to find somebody else to buy it. Again, it works. Like clearly, it's not like it doesn't work. It's just not the game that we're playing. And it's just a very different way to express talents. So if you look at the way we structure deals, I mean, as you know, you're one of our investors, Ted, and like the last two deals we've done with no senior lender involved. We've done all equity with a combination of equity and seller debt. And why do we do that? Well, if you look at how family companies are run. And so when I look at how's wealth built, so let's go back to first principles. How's wealth built? Wealth is built 
almost always through family businesses. That's how wealth's built. So if you look at every wealthy family, it came from them. Somebody started a business. They were an entrepreneur. They grew that business potentially over generations and it generated, did really well, generated a lot of cash flow. And so if you look at that, well, how did they survive for 60, 70, a hundred years? They survived by having typically very low debt. They took things slowly. They did things methodically. They served their customers. They served their employees. They served their communities. And in turn, the family got served. And so when you think about it from that perspective, to us, we think about it as just being an extension of how a family would treat a business. So when we have sellers that take seller notes, they are in a superior position of knowledge to us, and it's a really great way for them to go and share along the ride, right? So we take a portion of the purchase price, typically put it in seller note, and then the rest we pay down cash. They sometimes retain equity in the company and go along for the ride that way as well. We love that. We think that's a great way to do it. And it's just a very low stress. I mean, business is stressful enough. When you add the typical normal stressors of business, you'll have problems. You'll screw up. You've got government issues intervening all the time. You've got bad actors in your industry. You've got, I mean, there's, there's people coming at you from every which way, right? Like I like to joke, it's, you know, it's like eating glass and, and being in a knife fight, right? I mean, is how operating company, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's sort of organized chaos. You layer in additional pressure of having debt covenants that are really tight that you've got to meet and you've got to be delevering. And now you've got all the free cash flow. Even if you have a great opportunity to reinvest in the business, you can't do it. You've got all your free cash flow going to delever the debt. So the way we look at it is we want to buy optionality in these companies. We want them to functionally operate the same way they did before we bought them is the same way they do afterwards. And the only way for us to see how to do that is you keep leadership in place. You try to augment that leadership team in collaboration with them in, in ways that hopefully will make the company sustainably better over time. But then you don't layer them with debt and you just let them do their thing. And as cash flow rolls in, you're able to either deploy that free cash back into the business to reinvest in equipment and new initiatives and, and new product lines and help innovate on behalf of customers. That's the whole point. If all your free cash flow is going to pay down debt, you're not spending that on R&D. A lot of it's just, to us, very logical. Now, I totally understand why private equity does what they do. It's just a very different model than, than what we're doing. And the fact that we're holding indefinitely, right? I mean, that's a huge piece of it too. So we're making investments. One of our favorite questions to ask is, what are investments we could make today that wouldn't show up for five or 10 years? Private equity just can't ask that question. Yeah. So that's private equity. In terms of search funds, Typically, we're operating above in terms of the size of company and heft of company, typically above search funds. So our kind of target market these days is three to eight million in, in free cash flow is kind of where we are, which is right on the cusp, kind of a little bit below private equity and a little bit above search funds. When I like to put search funds, fundless sponsors, and country club deals kind of all together, right? I mean, they have different nuances to them, but they're kind of all together. I mean, a big difference between search funds and us is search funds are still on a on a time horizon. The investors want their capital back, so they're not going to hold the business forever. And two, the leadership team is being taken over, at least typically the head spot, by the new CEO who's the searcher. So it's just a very different style and a very different mentality that you go into. I think that search funds more closely resemble private equity. It seems like sort of combination of down market private equity with operating partner that's already built in is kind of how I think about search funds. It's very similar and, and we're very different for all the ways we talked about in private equity. Yeah. So I know you spent a lot of time over the years telling the story of how you go about doing things so that you can be known to sellers of businesses. How does that work? 
getting back, I think you asked the question a little bit before and we got we got sidetracked with search funds and private equity. So how we source deals is is I think completely differently, at least we think it's completely differently than everyone else. So everyone else is going outbound. And when you go outbound, there are in essence call centers set up at some of these private equity firms where you know you hire very well educated young people that are just graduating from college. And for two years their job is to basically cold call. They're cold calling executives and founders, owners. They're going in outbound, contacting people at conferences. I mean, sort of like a heavy traditional business development techniques. And I can go into the nuance of why we don't want to go in that direction. I think there's some some negative selection biases. And I think from a power dynamic standpoint, it's just not a great dynamic that's set up doing that. So it wastes a lot of other people's time and it wastes a lot of your time. Not to say it doesn't work because it does. Although the joke in private equity is there really are no proprietary deals anymore, right? So everyone jokes about proprietary deals. There's there's very few anymore. We actually get a lot of proprietary deals. We eat on proprietary deals, right? And when we say proprietary, it doesn't mean that there's never another group interested. I mean, look, if an asset is a quality asset, there's always going to be competition for the asset. So that's not the question. The question is, is it a small group? Is it intentional why you're involved in the mix? Or are you just one, a number amongst the crowd, right? That's bidding on it. We typically, with very rare exception, don't participate in auctions. We just subscribe to the winner of an auction is the biggest loser, sort of by definition, you pay the highest price. We like to get in situations where people have educated themselves on us. People know who we are. There's already trust built through our writings, through what we've talked about, and they want us to buy the business. Like they're, they're coming out and seeking us. And so this sometimes happens through an intermediary. It sometimes happens direct. We have founders, owners reach out all the time. We have executives and companies that reach out and say, I haven't talked to the owner yet, but I've been following you all. And we would love to be the executive team with you if you could somehow transition from an owner, right? Which is another completely different group. So the helpers of owners are another group that we think a lot about. So lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, we try to develop relationships with them where they know who we are, what we stand for. And the way we think about it is, 90% of the time, we're the wrong buyer. 90% of the time, a seller just wants the most cash at close, the least risk, and it's a pure financial decision. And if it's a pure financial decision where you don't care who buys it, you don't care what they do with the company, we're not going to be the right fit. There will be somebody out there who's willing to pay more, right? Who's willing to short circuit. And, and they, by the way, they can pay more because they're loading it up with a tremendous amount of non-recourse debt. They're going to slash and burn the team. They're going to treat people for a short period of time while they own it terribly, right? Well, of course you can pay more for an asset. It's not complicated, right? For 10% of the people, though, that care deeply about their employees, these are their family. They care about their communities. They don't want the jobs, you know, synergized, quote unquote, out, right? We become a really appealing offer. I mean, this idea that money's a commodity kind of drives me nuts. Obviously, money is a commodity is pure sense. But money's always attached to people, and people are not commodities, and their mindsets are not commodities. And so when you look at the way we perform and the way we behave, we think we're very much different than how a lot of other pools of capital perform and behave. And so that's the way we try to differentiate. And so we're doing a lot of things, just educating people about who we are, how we work. We try to spend a lot of time writing and communicating with people, again, so that it creates a positive selection bias. It repels the wrong people, attracts the right people. That's the way we think about it. Yeah. And what percentage of the businesses that come through the doors do you end up doing some real work on? Let's see. In terms of real work, I would say probably 
15% of the businesses that come through, we, we take a really close look at. So if the business is very lightly staffed, it's sort of a, almost more of a hustle than a business. Um, and you can get in some big hustles. Like we looked at a business recently that was doing $9 million of free cash flow that is definitely a hustle right? It's one person. They're the linchpin in this thing. Everyone is an extension of them. There's no systems. The repeatability of revenue is not there. And if that person gets hit by a bus, I mean, the entire company implodes within a short period of time, right? So we call that a hustle, right? That's not a business. A business is a sustainable organization built along a collaboration amongst a lot of different people, right? I mean, that's what we think about it. So if we get a business that's in our target range, kind of that three to eight, even really two and above, kind of that two to three range is, is a little bit interesting for us. We've looked at a lot of things that are sort of two and a half going to four and a half. We can see a good sort of trajectory there. But if it's in our target range and we can understand the business and we think the ingredients are there, there's a, a closely held ownership group, right? Either one or a handful of people that own the, the company that all want to sell, which is ironic that that's even a problem. But a lot of times people are not on the same page and it just creates another risk in the deal. So we want to see, you know, closely held ownership, you know, willing seller. We want their expectations to be within, you know, a sort of ballpark of reasonability. I mean, we occasionally have people come in and say, well, if you pay me 10 times for my $3 million earning business, then I will happily exit to you. And I, we say, thank you very much. And do some more research and let's potentially, we overlap in the future, right? But I would say is if the ingredients are there, expectations are right, leadership teams in place. And when I say leadership team, let me caveat that for a second. It's not always that the leadership team's completely set. So we're not looking for a completely set, durable leadership team that's going to be there for the next 20 years. It's impossible, right? That almost never happens. What we're looking for is the ingredients to build on. So if the owner is the primary decision maker and the owner is really the, the judgment of the business and very few other people in the business are doing any sort of ongoing, thoughtful decision making, it's just really hard to replicate that into the business. You know, you're selecting for a certain type of employee. And so we're looking for a lot of those nuances as we go along that we want to see this judgment that's more spread out in the organization. The leadership team is more stable. We want to see the traditional, I mean, of course, <laughs> diversified client base and all these things. But really, it's a, it's a fairly low bar to take the next step to do more work, do more research. Like we want to put in the time to really try to understand the business. And so this is what also gets us some unusual opportunities is we've gotten a reputation out there for being people that will look at stuff that everyone else just passes on because there's some nuance to it. It's in construction or it's in a highly cyclical industry. I mean, we've, we've recently gotten a really interesting, some deals in oil and gas that like, we're not going to buy into straight commodity business, right? So we want a business that's wholly dependent upon a commodity. But a business that kind of echoes with a commodity is, is okay. I mean, that's fine. And there's a lot of nuance to it. So, you know, we'll look at stuff that everyone's like, oh, we're not touching oil and gas, just wholesale. Or we don't touch retail, wholesale. Like, I mean, just period. We like to get into stuff that that looks maybe unattractive from the outside and, and, and has some unattractive features, but that we can get involved in, hopefully risk mitigate, and that we can see the nuance. And is that just tough because now you're talking about more and more possible businesses to look at. Right. Yeah. I mean, we look at a lot of diversity of things. I mean, everything from logistics companies to retailers to traditional B2B distribution, manufacturing type businesses as well. But um, if the owner just really cares about only selling for the highest price and it's quote unquote a down the middle type business, 
we're just not going to be the right fit. And so we look for that. What does the due diligence process look like once you start diving into these small businesses? We have a 20, I think it's 22 page checklist that we go through. I'm a big fan of checklists, right? We want to make sure that we're just not forgetting anything that could come up to bite us. And it's really just queuing, right? We're just queuing us to think through these different aspects of the business. What makes Adventures very unusual is that we do almost all of our diligence in-house. So this is very unusual in private equity. Most of it's outsourced, both legal and, and financial due diligence is outsourced. They're even going to bring in consultants to do psychology exams of the executives and they you know create these reports and i mean for us we're just not concerned with covering our ass it's just not something that that we think about a lot we want to be in a position with aligned incentives with our investors we want to be thoughtful about how we deploy the resources but we're going to take risk like we want to take risk and and it's calculated risk so to us it doesn't make sense if we're going to outsource all of this examination to third parties that all that's going to evaporate or become locked into those organizations. We want it to be locked into ours. We want to know these companies when we work with them. So for us, due diligence is a way to get to know people, a way to, to see how they work, the style, the communication, what irritates them, what doesn't irritate them. So we really built up the team to be able to perform a lot of the work in-house. We're certainly not perfect at it. We do seek outside counsel a lot, but we try to have all that knowledge stay kind of locked into the business. So we're going back to our mentality of how we think about adventures. We don't think of ourselves as being a private equity firm. So we're not a partner-led, partner-driven private equity model. We think of ourselves more as being a marketing firm right? That's getting the word out about what we're doing, how we're doing it, trying to use best practices and all those to generate the right opportunity. And then we're a manufacturing firm with a product to sell. So we think about being process-driven internally the same way we'd want our companies to be process-driven, right? I mean, we, we don't want to have the cobbler son has no shoes syndrome going on. So we take very seriously, how do we optimize our processes and our product for our customer, everything for us is optimized around what helps a seller and what helps a leadership team and what helps the company long-term, right? So being able to do due diligence in-house allows us to move faster. It allows us to, again, build up that knowledge and it makes the process just a lot more enjoyable and easy for the sellers. You've talked a lot about how a lot of the businesses you see should never be sold. What are some examples of things you found when you went on site that Everything looked good on paper, but you show up and you say, well, yeah, this is a no. Even intermediaries involved, you get a polish to the business, at least on the surface. And by the way, we love working with intermediaries. So this is a caveat. This is not a negative, but good intermediaries are incredible at bringing parties together, right? And how do you bring parties together? Well, you, you get to gloss over some stuff that are rough edges on both sides. Believe me, we have our rough edges too. I'm not saying we don't. The issue is we always want to know where that gloss has been applied and where it's not. And so when when we go on site, depending on how much coaching they've done and depending on how hands-on the intermediary is, they can certainly set up a tour. They can set up the conversation in such a way that you really aren't allowed to dig, and anytime you, you start digging into areas that they feel uncomfortable, you start hitting like a little nerve, it becomes very apparent that they don't enjoy that and they're not appreciating that and you should take a different tact. Well, for us, that's a perfect, great, great way to see to dig in, right? So, I mean, we're not going to be abrasive in the meeting, but we definitely, after we meet with them, want to dig into certain areas. And we're always just looking diligence, whether it's pre-LOI or post-LOI, is all about just kind of poking around the edges and seeing where the soft spots are. 
And so once you find a soft spot, you want to kind of dig into that soft spot until you feel comfortable that it's not as bad as you think it is or that you've kind of gotten to the bottom of it. What are some of the soft spots that you'll find in a small business that someone who's accustomed to, you know, mid-market or large private equity would never find? I think the most obvious one is every single seller has this strange tension between saying that they're irrelevant to the business, they're not needed at all. And when you dig in, they're making all the decisions. It's the funniest thing. We ask people the same question basically 15 different ways, right? We're trying to get at how are decisions actually made? So we'll say to them, so, you know, how much time do you spend in the business on a, on a weekly basis? And they'll say, oh, I mean, you know, maybe 10 hours of work a week. I mean, I'm in the office more, but I'm just, you know, I'm really just hanging out and I love fantasy sports and, you know, I'm, I've got some hobbies and things, but I, you know, I like to have a presence. Well, tell us more about that. Why do you feel like you need to have a presence? Well, I mean, you know, employees want to see that you're working hard. Okay. Well, so do you think that, you know, the employees wouldn't work hard if you weren't there? Well, no, 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 they definitely would. Okay. You know, you just sort of make a mental note, right? And then you say, so talk us about what are like three or four recent big decisions that you feel like, you know, big can be whatever they mean. Like what, what does big mean to you? And they'll say, oh, well, we had this line addition that we wanted to make and, you know, really proud of the team for getting together. We rallied, we did all the work, we got a great deal on this piece of equipment we needed to buy. And now we've got, a, you know, a great new line extension that our customers love. And we, great. That's awesome. So to walk me through how that decision was made. And what it turns out was somebody mentioned something or the owner mentioned it. And then everyone brought the owner, the information, the owner sorted through the information, asked more questions. And the owner made the decision. The owner worked with the bank, the owner right. worked with the manufacturer, the owner worked with the uh, customers. And that's just very different than a systematized team effort around something. So I think decision-making is probably the main one that we try to poke around on and, and learn about. I mean, there are just outright sort of moderately fraudulent things that we see, right? So Such as? Oh, I mean, we've had off balance sheet items where there's secret debt holders that they don't want to disclose the identities of the debt holders, some of them which are foreign, maybe with some unsavory ties. We've had outright changing the numbers. I mean, we have a deal right now, which we just can't figure out where reality is. The intermediaries can't figure out where reality is. The seller can't figure out where reality is. And it's like, guys, if you don't know where reality is, how do we know what we're getting involved in? The natural reaction is, I can't believe anybody would run their business that way. Let me give a little empathy, right? So so you're getting out of bed in the morning, you're running as hard as you can, and you're making really good money. I mean, if we're looking at your business, you're doing really well for yourself. And to be honest, most of these people look at accounting as being sort of the scorekeeping that happens after the game is played. So play the game and then watch the tape. That's accounting. They don't look at accounting or sort of the financial data infrastructure as being a good way to make decisions. They trust their gut. They know the business inside out. And to be honest, if you've worked in something for 30 years and you know all the ins and outs, you know all the people, you know you know where to get the information. So you don't need an accounting system to tell you the things that you already know. By default, invest in the resources to make the accounting systems irrelevant. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's irrelevant data for you. So we come in a lot of times and it's just really even difficult to get reality. And so sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes we're trying to obfuscate on certain things, but most of the time it's just, they haven't needed it. They don't see the value in it. They're not going to spend on it. They're doing great. It's actually pretty logical and they're busy as hell. You go through this. This is always the rub. Why don't you talk about the valuation of the businesses that you tend to buy? Valuations are, it's a really tricky topic because it's always done typically on a multiples basis. So, but the, the question is multiple of what? 
And so I think that before you talk about multiples, you got to talk about what are the different things that multiples are based on. And I'm going to, I'm going to put off to the side, you know, sort of revenue or multiples of users or like the metrics that I've seen in sort of the startup world. Oftentimes it's going to be a, a metric around cash flow or earnings, operating profit, something like that. But the nuance matters. So my point is that there's a lot of nuance around what counts and what doesn't towards earnings and what are you doing a multiple based off of. So we looked at an aerospace company where I think it was doing seven, eight million dollars of EBITDA. But when you got through all of the reinvestments and all of the dynamics in the industry, really the business was doing about $3 million in, in true owner earnings, like the, the cash that sticks to the owner. So we always try to normalize to this idea of what does it feel like to sit in the owner's seat? What really sticks? So what do you have discretion over and what do you not have discretion over? Because the, the ideal thing is you want to value a business on after everything has been has been paid to kind of keep it on its current trajectory, right? And you have investments in leadership being made that scale with the company as it increases in size and heft. That takes money, right? You want to look at what actually sticks, what actually sticks is not just, and this is the complication, and, and this is where it even takes it beyond owner earnings really to working capital, is it's not just an income-based item. It's also balance sheet matters. So we'll look at a lot of businesses that in an upcycle look like they make a crazy amount of money that actually consume cash. So we looked at a business, it's actually fairly recently, that was doing eight, eight and a half million of free cash flow. And gosh, we wanted this business to work out. It was a direct seller. The family came to us and said, we want you. And we were like, yes, this is perfect, right? Making $8 million a year is what they told us. Now, how much are you, how much are you making? Eight million bucks. Great. The problem is when you took out depreciation, you took out the reinvestments that were needed. So depreciation CapEx are really two sides of the same coin. Depreciation is the taking down of the asset over time, you know, sort of depreciating over a period of time. CapEx is what you're investing on an annual basis. And usually those two things normalize sort of if you stretch the time horizon far enough. So we kind of use those interchangeably. What we're trying to figure out is how much you really need to reinvest back in the business and equipment, purchases of things to sort of keep your competitive position. Not growth CapEx, which is different. Growth CapEx being totally all on the upside. You're hoping to get a return on that. But this business, when you take into account, they were spending upwards of three, three and a half million dollars a year on CapEx pretty normally. So you take the eight down to five, four and a half million in that range. And then you look at their working capital. Well, as the business model has evolved over time, Amazon's had an impact on them. They're having to carry a lot more inventory. Well, if you look at the past five years, they've actually consumed $25 million of capital. Now, some of that's been made up of the operating earnings, but most of it's not. They've net negative cash flow. And by the way, when you look at the projections for the next five years, it's going to consume another probably $30 million. How do you value a business that's making, quote unquote, $8 million a year in EBITDA, right? You've now got $3 million, just call it, of CapEx on an annual basis. You had to reinvest back in the business, which is truly depleted over a period of time. So these assets are not building up and sort of being sustainable, but truly depleting over a period of time. You have interest now on carrying big lines of credit that are used for the operations of the company. So this is not debt that's being put on the company in terms of a senior note to make a transaction happen. This is just part of the ongoing normal operations of the company because you got to fund the delta in working capital, right? In the cash flow. So now you got a business that's paying, call it million and a half, $2 million in interest a year in a rising rate environment. How do you value that business? Well, so if I told you, like, what is the multiple on that business? And you said, well, the business is doing 8 million bucks. 
surely a business that's doing $8 million a year gets, what, a six times multiple at least? Maybe seven or eight, 10? I mean, heck, if traditional private equity, I think it's going up to like 12, 14 now, right? In some assets. But then you actually like parse through the nuance and you say, okay, yeah, maybe EBITDA is eight. But real owner earnings is more like three. So you take a business all the way down there and you say, look, we'll pay three and a half times, four times on a business that's doing that, which looks outrageous from an $8 million EBITDA perspective. But again, it's not, it's not like we're coming in and not paying a fair price. Like that's never happening. By the definition, we're getting deals done, so we're paying fair prices. Let's turn a little bit to what happens in a negotiation of one of these businesses where you've got an owner, it lines up, right? The valuation is what you want. You sort of, what happens? So typically businesses in our segment are not priced below us in the market. So when you start getting sort of sub million dollars of earnings, sub 2 million in some cases, they'll be priced. So it'll literally be like a house sale. It's like, here's the going rate for the house. Here's what we want for the house. If you can meet that, you can buy it. Here are the terms. It's all prepackaged, right? Very rarely do we see price deals. So deals up market are truly, and this is down market as well, but they're unpriced because what somebody's willing to pay for it under what terms and what somebody's willing to accept for it under what terms. And so there's definitely a dance to it right? That's the way we kind of think about it. We try to never play games. So the dance is we typically will throw out an opening price and terms. So here's how we value the company. Here's what's included in that valuation. Here are the the terms of that valuation. And we try to be very detailed, including you know how long we want the owner to stay on board. We, we sort of set all the material we think about as major material terms in an indication of interest. We sometimes uh, combine a letter to the seller combined with a term sheet, right? To kind of two different forms of, of communication. We don't do the whole, we're going to lowball you so that you highball so that we meet in the middle thing. We typically, you know, if we're going to use a football analogy of 100 yards, we try to come in on the 40-yard line going to the 50-yard line, right? There's a little bit of room around the edges. But what we say is, if you want to change this, you're going to have to give on something else. Sure. So we try to come in with something reasonable. But oftentimes, we'll lose deals because other groups will come in and throw out a valuation that's 30 40% higher than ours. They have no intention of ever closing. And on top of that, if you're a fundless sponsor, you don't even raise the capital yet. You haven't raised the equity capital. So what you have to do after close, like people, people have no idea. Like the status thrown around sometimes like 20% of deals close after letter of intent in our area of the market. Well, why is that the case? 80% of deals after you've already come to material deal terms don't close. That's what that means, right? How could that be the case? Well, it's the case because most of the time when you look at deals that go under letter of intent in our area of the market, it's going to be somebody that doesn't have any resources, is really inexperienced, is small team or one person who's trying to put together the deal. And you have to go out and source legal and accounting advice. You have to go source your equity investors. You have to go source debt investment. How in the world do you make all those pieces fit together? Oh, and by the way, you're going to throw out a price that is materially higher than what you intend to pay so you can lock down the deal. It doesn't take a genius to realize that you mix all the five of those elements together and you've got a very low chance of closing. And so we try to present the exact opposite. We say, look, extreme reliability is something that we pride ourselves on. If we say we're going to do something, we do it every single time. So if we're going to throw out a price and we're going to throw out terms, we're going to be able to get it done. We have the the resources on hand. And that was a big reason why we wanted to raise the fund. We never wanted to make promises we couldn't keep. Yeah. So let's turn a little bit to that up until 
I guess this year, you had just been redeploying your own capital from the businesses you owned, and you made a decision to bring in some external capital. Why'd you bring in external money? We wanted to have the financial resources to meet the opportunity. I mean, frankly, we didn't start with a huge capital base, right? It was me being an entrepreneur and sort of compounding over a long period of time. And once you pay your taxes and you reinvest back into the businesses and have changes in working capital, kind of similar to what we talked about, there's not always a tremendous amount of that raw earnings power that is available on an ongoing basis. It kind of comes in fits and spurts. To be honest, I mean, we've, we've had issues where a company's grown in our portfolio dramatically, which is phenomenal. It's amazing. We love it, but it'll consume a bunch of cash for a shorter period of time, right? But later it'll catch up being able to fulfill the demand that we saw out there in the market. I mean, the, the honest to God truth is that people are living longer. The baby boomer ownership wave hasn't really hit yet which has kind of surprised a lot of people. But I think it totally makes sense. You know, older demographics are, are getting older, but people are living longer and the health into old age feels like people are living healthier lives older, which means they can work longer. And I think people are working longer, especially if you love what you do and your passion is your work, right? Which is a lot of these sellers, right? So if you look at it, we, let's call it a year and a half ago, Ted, when you and I first met, I mean, I remember the question, you asked me this question then, and I said, we just frankly have far more demand for our product than we have fulfillment. Like we can't fulfill the demand. So we want to help people transition their businesses. We want to have the resources to get involved in the right decisions. And that was a huge piece of it. I'd say that's a big dominant piece of it. Another piece of it was my wife and I, we don't believe in sort of compounding our own wealth and then giving it away at the end. We want to give it away as we get it. So we've made the decision that that we want to, on an ongoing basis, support organizations that we think are doing good things in the world. And frankly, it's an interesting psychology when it's all your own money, right? Every dollar we gave away was a bullet we couldn't shoot in the business. And I've got a team of 12 people whose livelihood depends on us having bullets to shoot. It's a weird tension to have this trade-off. And my wife and I have had this conversation where it's like, gosh, we really want to do something that we feel called to do. But at the same time, there's a tension with we feel like we're depriving our organizations and especially the team at Adventures of opportunities for professional advancement. I saw that coming up more and more in the future. And I just really want to decouple it. I think we struck an interesting balance. I'm a heavy investor. I'm a 15% investor in the fund. That's a lot of skin in the game. So a heavy incentive. But at the same time, it's able to amplify the capital I do have. We're able to do more things and be able to give us some flexibility in giving. So you structured this vehicle as a permanent capital vehicle. And without going into the details, very heavy incentive fee driven, no management fee at all. Correct. Talk a little bit about your thoughts of structuring it that way. I'm a big believer in incentives and incentives are to me the guardrails that you put around your life. How you set up your incentives in your life and how you think about what you want to do matters. And so for us, one, we never wanted to have any incentive to have to do something. So the biggest issue with not having the management fee, and, and we can talk about the downside of not having the management fee too, which we're not oblivious to. And investors, to be frank, some of them didn't invest in our first fund because we didn't have a management fee. So it's not all roses. But for the most part, I think the trade-off was worth it, at least at the time. The trade-off was I didn't want to be drawing a fee to where investors expected us to perform. When I say perform, I mean getting deals done. 
I always want us to be opportunistic. So we told investors, the pitch was, one, plan on never getting your capital back, which was an interesting curation technique, apparently. (laughs) Like the only people in the history of the world to say that to people. And two, we said we may do five deals in one year or one deal in five years. And you got to be okay with that. Like we're going to do deals when they're the right deals to do. And we're not going to do deals when there's not the right deals to do. I think that's very different than this idea of, I can't remember who the guy said, I think it was a Citigroup guy who said, if the music's playing, you got to- Yeah, Chuck Prince. Yeah, exactly, Chuck Prince. So we never want to get in that mentality. An incentive fee to me is if I felt like it was clicking away on a monthly basis and we weren't delivering, like we weren't doing deals, I would feel a pressure that I didn't want to have. And so that was a major incentive to do it that way. I also just have this- perhaps naive insistence that I never want to be able to make money if my investors don't make more money. Straight up. And with a fee on the front end, there was a chance that I could make money and my investors wouldn't. So again, it was far more difficult, as you and I have talked about pretty extensively in the past, to raise the capital under, I think they're unique terms. If not unique, then very unusual, highly unusual terms. And learned a lot of important lessons around career risk and how that all matches up with investors, we're never going to say we're locked in. We never want to get to this blind devotion to an idea that we created that to the point where we're never going to look at, at, at doing something different. If the honest to God truth is, we've got this $50 million, we're actively deploying it, we've gotten two deals done this year, we'll see what the future holds, and if the time comes where we decide to do another fundraise... We're going to look at what's the best interest of the organization, the best interest of the investors, and we're going to try to make a decision then to structure it. And I hope it's in a very similar way to the first fund, but it doesn't have to be exact. So as someone that went out to the market to raise capital for the first time, what did you find? There is a diversity of LPs out there is one of the things that I I will say to you. I met some unbelievably kind, generous, intelligent thoughtful people who I just, frankly, like I would never have access to any other way and that I would have never met any other way. And many of those became our investors, man, it was a huge boost. Like it was fantastic. The conversations, I mean, you talk about iron sharpening iron, like good investors ask good questions. And some of the stuff we had thought through a lot of it, but a lot of it created a depth in our organization that I think didn't exist there before and made us think through or rethink things that maybe we had sidelined for too long. On the opposite of the spectrum, I met quite a few people that gave me the heebie-jeebies. I mean, I don't know, you know, (laughs) that just were Wolf of Wall Street-esque, that were incredibly not kind, not generous, and treated us very poorly. And I think that that's a gift as much as the other is. My nightmares, and I woke up multiple times in like a cold sweat during the fundraising process is we close on the capital and all of a sudden I'm saddled with a group of people who now are occupying my time. I'm stressed out about them. I used to joke that calling the board of directors could be done in the shower every morning, right? It was ultimately the decision fell with me and I certainly didn't want to have to now be bifurcated in my thinking, decisions by committee. And I think how we structured the fund, it's a true blind pool. There's no control. I mean, I think you know the only control that the investors have is they have to 75% vote, I think. I think that's what it is. 75% level have to vote to remove me. And I'm 15% LP, right? And maybe, I, maybe I'd vote against me, but in that case, <laughs> I'd probably just step down. But it's a pretty high bar. Other than that, I mean, the decisions really, these people are trusting our organization to make really good decisions. And just to be clear, like 
there's a depth of organization to adventures that I think most people are maybe not aware of. I mean, we have 12 full-time people, soon to be 14 full-time people. These are pros. The people we have on board, we've gotten them slowly over time. I mean, we have two people on board who've been with us more than nine years, pushing 10 years. The next is, I think, almost eight and almost seven. I mean, we've got a depth to the team. We've worked together for a long time. And they were backing the big idea. And obviously, as the CEO, they were backing me, but they were backing a team. So the investors are buying that depth, right? They're buying that team and they're buying the, the, the processes, the system, the brand that we've developed, the style, all those things. Yeah. So you're bringing the capital and as earlier this year, you've done two deals. Why don't you pick one of them and walk through some of the deal and then what happened after you closed? Instead of trying to choose, you know, between one or the other, yeah. just chronologically. So we partnered with a wonderful organization called TEPCO in Dallas, Texas. Bill Keen was the CEO, still is the CEO. A wonderful transition that's, that's occurred since. We had an intermediary bring it to us and Bill was looking for, he wasn't looking for a buyer. He was looking for a partner. And so he tasked the intermediary who we thoroughly enjoyed working with that find me somebody who is not going to load up the company with debt. That's going to think long-term. It's going to keep my people in place. He didn't want to be absorbed into a bigger organization and the company's phenomenal. They have incredible technology. They do very high-end glazing work. So you, you think of glass as being pretty trans, pretty transparent, ha ha ha, right? But pretty straightforward. And what I learned through this process is it's not, I mean, so they have four liquid cooled computers that are doing, you know, millimeter intersections with plans. I mean, they're doing glass panels for skyscrapers, very technical work. And they also have this incredible product in the stadium market that if basically glass retracts up into the ceiling, like in a skybox, they're almost always the people that do that. They have some really interesting technology around that. We closed in late February, early March. And the plan we developed was Bill, the CEO, is staying on full-time for two years in CEO role, then transitions to chairman role, in which time the number two has been with him for 10 years, steps up into the CEO role. There's a number three who's going to step up into the number two role. So it's very orderly. It's boring. It's just so boring, which is beautiful for us, right? It's just straightforward. We couldn't enjoy it anymore. I mean, and there's been ups and downs in the business. I mean, I think that's the thing. No business is perfect. No people are perfect, right? Including us. So all we can do is just treat them well. They've treated us incredibly well. And we've had a blast so far. We've moved some things forward that I think that we've kind of freed them up to take more risk. Again, we love what's, asking- What's an example of that? We're moving into the Las Vegas market because we were really called there by one of our large clients and, and some relationships that they had had. And so the question was, well, do we do it or not? And it's a risk, right? You got to set up a whole new office. You got to hire a team. There's executional risk. And what happens if you get there and won't, 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 there's no work. So we challenged their thinking. We put together a plan. We looked at the investment need. And again, this is sort of Living it out, the theory of what are we going to do today that's not going to pay off for years in the future? This is an investment. We're bringing down our returns this year, right? And we're happy to do that because we think it's going to be worth it. And we think we're going to be able to serve clients in a different way. Gives us an anchor in the West. So that's an example of these types of projects. We always ask, like, what's on the hit list? Like, if you had unlimited resources, what are the highest probability, highest return opportunities that we can look at? And all of them immediately, day one, said, this is something we should take a look at. And we said, great. If you believe in it, we believe in it. I think they were almost surprised. They were like, really? This is how you guys are going to trust us? Yes, truly. And any negative surprises in the business? 
the business is a constant. We've had some sicknesses amongst the leadership that's been challenging, but look, it's life, right? Yeah. Like, what else are you going to do? You've talked a lot about communication and your brand at Adventures, and you're in the process of finishing a book. What's the book? I never thought I'd write a book. In fact, I consider really anybody under the age of 50 who writes a book to be somewhat of a fraud, I think, um, because <laughs> I, I think that you should ha definitely have something to say. And I kind of was brought kicking and screaming into doing it. And really, maybe talking about the book is a great way to like how we think about content in general and writing articles for, for adventures. So the way we think about it is we always want to replicate a conversation at scale. So when we think about when we write an article for adventures, like we just came out with one on working capital. Well, it's kind of like the 45 minute or hour long conversation we have to have with every single seller every single time. So we write this article because we can put in really crystallized, thoughtful analysis that sometimes gets lost in the mix that we can give to them and we can say, hey, we'd like to have a conversation about working capital. Can you read what we wrote? We actually wrote this recently. Will you read what we wrote? And then let's have a conversation after that. Now the conversation is completely different. Instead of going over the basics, now we can say, okay, is there anything about our perspective that you disagreed with? No, no, actually it's in really reason. Great. Let's maybe go one or two layers deeper than we would ever be able to get otherwise until maybe at higher risk towards the end to talk about how that philosophy pays off. So in much the same way the book has been written that it's like 10 hours of conversation that I want to have with every seller. It's not as a buyer, but as a person who's, if it was a friend of mine who came to me and said, I'm thinking about selling my company, what do I need to know? This is the 10 hours of conversation I would have with that friend that would lead them to be able to at least see a picture of what they're getting ready to get into. Who are the players? What are the different styles? How does a deal get put together, including the negotiation? What about debt? What about the leases on your buildings that you own? What about employment agreements? The emotional process that you go through? How does governance work post-close? Should you roll forward into the deal and keep a percentage of the company? Should you not? In a deal... There's probably four or 500 decisions that have to be made, and all of those decisions carry consequences. And the challenge that we see a lot of times with sellers is the individual decisions are not complicated. But when you add them all up, combined with the, like, you don't know what you don't know, it creates a really challenging environment to be able to get something done, which, again, if you get a deal done, it's both good for the buyer and good for the seller. So the book is called The Messy Marketplace. I'm the publisher, we uh, <laughs> we do a whole riff on publishing models. We talk to a number of publishers and I pray for publishers because their business model, I just don't get it. It didn't make sense for us at least. The idea that we do all the work and they do some editing and have control and then we'd go out and sell the book and they would take 70 to 90% of the proceeds just didn't sit well with us. So we created our own imprint. The imprint is called Boring Books. The logo is a book upside down on a table. We're looking forward to it. I mean, the goal is we wanted to create a dense resource that we could get into people's hands and help create value in their life. I mean, selfishly, look, we hope that some of the sellers read the book and are like, Adventure seems like the right group for us. We didn't know about them beforehand. It's a way to get to know us. The primary purpose is we want to be able to give this to people as a way to scale ourselves and say, look, as a seller that's coming to us and saying, we want you to buy our business, here's a book. Can you read the book first? And then can we talk in two weeks? Yeah. That's really the ultimate goal. All right, Brent, let's turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite 
sports or extracurricular moment? I recently got back into competitive tennis. So I like to think of myself as the Charles Barkley of tennis, you know, the round mound of fuzzy balls. With the mouth too? Exactly, with the mouth on him. So anyway, tennis was something I, I played growing up. Actually, uh, an illicit story here. I'm here because of tennis. My dad was my mom's tennis coach in college. Oh, wow. So I owe a lot to the game. Anyway, I grew up playing tennis and I ended up kind of losing it for 10 years. Just life gets busy. And so I recently got back into it and I won a 4-0 tournament. And I got to the semifinals of a four five tournament, which is it's like legit tennis, right? It's fun getting back into it. Extracurriculars are fun. I mean, it's a way to, for me, it's get exercise, have a blast, get to meet people. It's all the right things, I think. All right. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Redrawing the bullseye around the arrow after it's already hit is, is something that I pretty frequently see in the investing world. It seems like I read investor letters. Oftentimes, there sometimes is a very good justification for why the numbers maybe don't tell the full story. But over a long period of time, shouldn't the numbers tell the story? And I feel like there's this tendency to, on an ongoing basis, justify why you did everything right instead of rubbing your nose in the things you did wrong. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Well, in hindsight, I went surfing in South Africa with a 12-foot or 14-foot great white right nearby and didn't realize it. I went with a buddy surfing and we got back in. We'd return our surfboards back to the shop, surf shop. And the guy was like, did you not hear me yelling? And I was like, no. And he was like, yeah, there's a big great white spotted like not too far from you guys. And I was like, don't you have a freaking bell or something you ring or an air horn? You know, and he was just like very nonchalant about it. So I don't know, like the school bus with teeth being fairly near me as I was bobbing in the water. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Both my parents work their tails off and work their tails off when no one's looking and have done it over a very long period of time. Like this idea of, and when I say working, it's not just working hard because they, they always spent time with us. I mean, I come from a, a wonderful family. I got an incredible head start in life. And the older I get, the more I realize how rare that was. I mean, I come from a two-parent household. Both my parents were very supportive and encouraging. And the reliability that I saw them exhibit, you know, sort of hard work to me is is very similar to reliability. Like they're kind of very, very similar ideas. They just always followed through. And there's always this idea of like, you finish what you start, you do it ahead of time, you don't make excuses. And so I saw like, you know, for instance, my mom pretty frequently when I was in high school, she'd say, you know, I get everything done. You got all your homework, you know, stuff. And I, yeah, yeah. And she's like, really? It's all done. No, I'm going to wait till morning, get a little bit more. And she's like, nope, let's sit down and do it. And she'd be working on something that, you know, she's very involved in the arts in Missouri. And she'd be working on a grant proposal. This is unpaid work. This is for, is a volunteer. And she'd be pouring over this thing for 20, 30, 40 hours, just trying to get it done. And so I'd stay up until late at night with her and she'd be working and I'd be working. And it really just taught me that it, like, it's not a matter of getting paid or not getting paid for the work. It's once you set your mind to something, just do the job, get it done. And I think that's always been something that stuck with me. What source of information do you read that you get the most out of? Twitter for me has been a phenomenal place. I mean, look, it has dangers and it can suck you in and it can bolster your pride and it can get you distracted. And, you know, look, that's life, right? I think for the most part, Twitter for me has been a just a gift. I've gotten to meet people I never would have met any other way. I've gotten to learn from people. 
it's just a great way to scale thinking and a great way to share learning. I find probably 80% of the things that I get done with it. I say, wow, that was really valuable. I found through somebody on Twitter. I think it's important to curate, you know, who you follow. And I try to cut out cynicism. And there's a whole group, especially on FinTwit, that it's like they're cynical about everything, negative about everything. And it's like, I just try to sidestep that whole group, right? You can't do anything. No one can do anything right. No one cares about anything. It's like sort of like, it's like borderline nihilism, right? And I think you just sidestep that. And there's a lot of people though, that are unbelievably generous and kind with their time and how they source things. I mean, you have a whole army of people out there that are incredibly intelligent sourcing stuff for you and giving it to you. Like, what more do you want? That's great. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Create win-win relationships, win-win deals every time without exception. Everyone can be generous until it costs them something. Like everyone's ethical until there's something on the line. And early in my career, I wanted to create lasting relationships, but I didn't realize how impossible it was to create lasting relationships if you don't set the table well. And if you don't create a win-win, it's just unsustainable, like just flat out. Something I've learned through the years by hitting my face on the pavement and frankly, by not treating people always as well as I should have is it not only hurts them and it hurts me. I mean, look, we do negotiate for a living, right? And some negotiations get heated. And at the end of the day, we've got to walk away if we can't get where we want to, but we're never going to take advantage of something. We're never going to present something that we know we wouldn't do if we were in their shoes with their circumstances. And I think as long as you can live by that, Life just becomes a lot better. You don't have to carry guilt. I feel like there's so much in the deal-making world, or really in finance in general, that's just zero sum. You're trying to screw somebody over. Hey, it's just business, right? That just harms everyone. And, and at the end of the day, you you end up maybe with a lot of wealth, because I know that there are people who have become wealthy doing it that way. I also, the people that I know that are that way that have become wealthy are miserable. And they end up alone and jaded and isolated, the terminal conclusion of that game ends poorly for everyone. Brent, so much fun. Thanks for taking the time. I love you, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 